because we'd already copped a couple of casualties from uh, like Snowy and Smitty and Herbie. To say that didn't hurt, no, nah, it hurts. It hurts the battalion. But to have someone that you know personally that you have had beers with and socialized with to be on that casualty list, it really gets personal. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Clean, you know, you're going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the like syndrome. She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Welcome to the season three finale of Life on the Line. To close out this season is a veteran story of trauma, growth, and resilience from battlefields overseas to how life in uniform is intertwined with life back home. Aaron Davis served in the 6th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment. He was deployed to Timor, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Between his times overseas, he was juggling his ever-growing family and his increasing difficulty to switch off and transition from cams to civvies. This is his story. I'm Alex Lloyd in Melbourne today, speaking with Aaron Davis. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Where did you grow up, Aaron? I grew up in a little town, beachside community called Shoal Bay or Fingal Bay. Before that, we lived in Sydney. Yeah, moved to the Bay Area in the early 90s and I grew up there uh, with a group of surf mates and uh, yeah, had a great childhood there. It was great. What is the first moment you remember being interested, even vaguely, in the military? I've got two grandfathers that were in the army. One was, from my understanding, was one of the Rats of Brook, And the other one I've had to do just a little bit of research on. Uh, he was part of the 2nd, 5th Battalion. He saw time in New Guinea and Borneo. And from his war records, he saw a lot of fighting through New Guinea and um, through Kokoda. Having that in the back of my mind, it was always one of those things that I've had a pretty good understanding as to what some of the old soldiers are like. Also, living in the Bay Area, there was a lot of veterans, World War II, Vietnam blokes all around, and I'd see them on some Anzac days and, and around the area and have a chat with those guys, and like they seemed like absolute heroes to me. And that just piqued that interest in uh, wanting to join the army. My father was also in the army uh, for a small period there, but uh, he didn't get to go anywhere because he got injured one too many times. So it was a short-lived career for him. But despite your father's injury, did you start to think you were most likely always going to head that way? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because of the community that we lived in, there was uh, a lot of bush around there too. So me and mates used to run around the bush and we'd always shoot each other with sticks and, and things like that. But I always took it a little bit more seriously. I'd use cover properly in behind uh, trees and ferns and things like that. Just take it just that little step further than most of my mates. And they all just said, oh, you're, you're going to be one of those army men. I knew I would as to when I'd, I didn't know. But uh, I remember during high school, it would have been about year 10, we had a Defence Force recruiter come through and give us the spiel and come join the army and Navy or Air Force. But he was an army recruiter and he really spoke about the army and the role that it does. And this was about 96, 97. And it really appealed to me. I wasn't doing too well during year 10 and uh, I made an inquiry and they basically said no. I had to wait until I finished year 12 and from the recruiter's perspective said, look, do it, you'll kick yourself if you don't. So from that, I worked pretty hard to get to year 12 and uh, once completed that, uh, put another line of inquiry in and uh, again, they said, oh, you don't have the life experience, don't bother. So... I had other things in the pipeline. Upon completion of high school, I uh, managed to get myself an electrical apprenticeship and uh, completed that. That part starts part of the next journey. Tell me about that start of the next journey. Once I completed the uh, apprenticeship, I was let go by the big company that I was working for in Sydney. I moved from home the day after I turned 18. Like any 
parents dream. They want all their kids out of their house as soon as they possibly could. The day after I turned 18, I was gone. Uh, I moved to Sydney pretty much by myself to start this apprenticeship. There was a busy period there in Sydney. The Sydney Olympic Games from 2000 to 2004, there was a massive construction boom. There was a lot of jobs going on. Uh, it was a fantastic and perfect time to do an apprenticeship. Once the construction industry started slowing down, it was a case of now what? I stick around or let's do something else. And the army was never too far from my mindset because a couple of guys I used to train martial arts with, one of them joined. He got assigned to 3rd Battalion when it was still in Holsworthy and I saw him kicking around in a cherry beret and I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought, oh, jumping out of planes doesn't sound too bad. I walked into the recruiting office at Parramatta and said, what have you got for me? And I said, well, what do you want to do? I said, oh, okay. If you're, I'll be a tiger pilot. I want to be a helicopter pilot. I want to go shoot stuff. That looks cool. So I went through the processes and turned out, no, nah, I couldn't do that. So they said, oh, well, what else have you got? Uh, they said, look, we've got this new job. Uh, it's not a new job, but it sounded pretty interesting. Uh, ECN 273, electronic warfare operator. And I thought, what does that do? That sounds mystical and whatnot. Let's do it. I didn't even give the recruiter any chance to get some information for me. I just said, nah, let's do it. It sounds pretty super spy-ish type stuff. And uh, yeah, signed on as a ECN 273. Off to Kapuka on the 14th of September, 2004. Tell me about your journey from that to 2006. Upon completion of uh, Kapuka, got sent to Defence Force School of Signals here in Melbourne uh, over at Simpson Barracks, where most of the recruits out of my platoon were assigned signals. So we all went as a pretty much as a platoon to DFSS. We were either radio operators, EW guys, computer techs, those type, well, they call themselves geeks. We all got lumped into the same area, so we just kept on going on, but we had a little bit more free reign. We would get into a little bit of mischief here in Melbourne. Some of us didn't come from Melbourne. Some that did, they just went home. Those that didn't, they were from God knows where in Australia. We all went out in Melbourne together and we had fun. So we had to go through the old army procedures and train up and be your designated role. And um, going through all the training for EW, it was tough. Had to learn Morse code. So that was your second language. So listening to dits and dars day in, day out, it sends you a little bit batty. But at the same time, had to go through a security clearance process. So that was pretty intrusive into your personal life. Going through that, I didn't get my necessary uh, clearances, which worked out well for me because it uh, set me up for another career path within the army because there was a heap of other infantry type blokes that transitioned from being infantry to one of the signal jobs. They got into my ear and said, look, I reckon you'd do well in um, infantry. Give it a go because I didn't mind pack marching, getting out and about, getting dirty, shooting stuff and doing all that physical type stuff. Give it a blast. It's only three months at Singer. It's not that hard. Anyone can do it. Put the paperwork in and before I know it, 2006, off to Singleton to start IETs for infantry. So you get through that for infantry. When is your first deployment? After Singleton got assigned to 6th Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment in Brisbane at Inogra there. First day into Battalion was the 1st of August 2006. I rock up to the guard room to be assigned to Charlie Section 1 Platoon. Upon walking into, into the section or into the platoon office, no one really wants to know you because I was only one of four that were marching into 6RER. The boss at the time turned around and said, yep, welcome to the platoon. We're off to Timor. The news I had to break to my then girlfriend, now wife, of, yep, welcome to Brisbane. In a few weeks' time, I'm off to Timor. Thanks for relocating with me. I'll see you home later. <laughs> exactly. So needless to say, she wasn't overly impressed. How old were you two at the time? Oh, she's going to kill me. She would have been about, I think, 20. I was about 25. And uh, needless to say, thank you, Army. We deployed, oh, the battalion deployed on her 21st birthday. What a gift, yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming. Speaking with various guests on this podcast who have deployed to Timor over the long range of our time there, people's experiences in that country have varied greatly. What was your experience in Timor like? What sort of work were you doing? It was varied to go from absolutely nothing to doing pickets at the H-Pod, so the helicopter airport, uh, which was called H-Pod, to doing the extreme of 
getting out and stopping riots happening. So going into full riot control type work to doing patrols in and around Dili, but also hunting, I shouldn't call it hunting, but looking for Afredo Renato, the rebel leader at the time, because a couple of months before we deployed, he and a few of his mates escaped from prison. When we got that news, we just went, oh, the workload's just going to increase. And looking back at it now, it wasn't the trip that they anticipated. It was a hell of a lot worse. Because the makeup of Dili, there's a lot of martial art gangs, but they're gangs nonetheless. They're always fighting for territory. So you had 7-7, Sacred Heart, and a few of the little gangs that would affiliate with certain gangs and fight on their behalf and things like that. So we're constantly putting out spot fires throughout Dili, which made the six-month trip disappear in no time. But on top of looking for Fred Renato, that really pushed our, not I wouldn't say pushed our limits, but it widened our view on how diverse Timor is. We got to see a lot of countryside. The people are absolutely beautiful. But it's just the uh, what was happening during that period, it was horrible. It brought the worst out in, in the locals, so we had to react to that. One incident that really sticks out in my mind, we were on patrol in the southern part of Dili and we come across a decapitated corpse. Don't know where the head was. We found the body. Don't know what the scenario was, but it was pretty bloody shocking. Uh, as, uh, as a young infantry bloke, I was the first person to come across it and to see that laying there. I thought it was someone laying down because we saw the feet first and then walked around. Needless to say, I was taken back a little bit to see a large part of the body gone. How do you explain that to the section commander? Yeah, we got a body. Yeah, what does it look like? Gone. <laughs> it's really hard to explain, but it's shocking at the same time. Well, it's a trip of first for you. It's not long after you've walked into the infantry and you've been deployed. It is, of course, your first overseas deployment. It's your first time seeing stuff like that. Is it your first time you get into contacts or any scraps? Not necessarily a firefight where bullets are whizzing past your ear or anything like that but rocks and steel darts, so fishkers. Looking back at the time, it didn't seem too bad, but it didn't take much for one of those uh, steel darts to actually penetrate because basically they were a, a six-inch nail flattened out used in a slingshot, and they could really let fly, and they were really accurate too. So we've got photos of guys, uh, not our own guys, but of locals having a uh, steel dart through their forearm and completely punched all the way through a forearm. So if it got into the body, well, we, you're going to have a, the medical team would have a hard time trying to extract that bad boy. But trying to stop desperate people from food, because that's what the rights were about, getting into the rice distribution centers. There were two big UN controlled rice distribution centers right next to the H-Pod. So we were constantly on rotation of holding a perimeter to it. So to stop an angry mob getting to that rice, no amount of training can um, get you ready for that, especially if it wasn't part of your job description. But I know the infantry is quite diverse and, and we can handle pretty much anything, but it was trial by fire. It was interesting to say the least, and this was early in the trip too, and if, if that's what the trip was going to be like for the rest of the term that were there, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. How do you look back on your time in Timor, do you feel like you made a difference there? I think we made the area a little bit safer. To say if it, we made a difference, eventually we did. Not 6 Battalion itself, but the ADF in general. Which you are a part of. You're serving that. Yes. We did do a very good job in controlling the movement of a Freighter Renato. He had, not to take it away from the other units that, that were there before us, but we were on his heels the, a lot of the time. We were looking for him. We were pushing the limits. He was always on the run. He could not stop to resupply his own ammunition, fuel, his men or anything like that. We were constantly pushing him around the country, constantly keeping him destabilized, which I think we did well as an infantry unit, which is a, that style of job is more probably facilitated to your special operations community. But we're always given the task, get there, put in cordons, put in um, VCP, so vehicle checkpoints, to stop his freedom of movement. Because one platoon was the air mobility guys. So we were constantly on and off helicopters. Sounds about the same as um, I Only 19 from John Schumann. In and out of Newey Dad on Hueys. We were in and out of Dilly on Blackhawks. So saying that, like, we were really busy, but it was great. If you're overseas, do some work. 
Sounds Like For You, Timor was eye-opening, at times intense, but also at times really enjoyable because you're getting to put those skills into practice. When you get home, how do you find the experience of switching off that intensity and those soldiering instincts and returning to -to day-to-day life? Good question. Wow. The first part I knew about that is when I came home on holidays, back to my own place where I stored my stuff. So I suppose it's home, but my girlfriend was there. And we went down to Brookside, so the shopping centre right next door. I didn't last 15 minutes. I couldn't do it because I was the lead scout for my section. I was the first person in that whole section to make a quick assessment of people that were in front of me to make sure they were good to pass us or know we had to stop and either search or get into a scrap. I was that guy that made that determination. So to go into a shopping center like that with that searching scanning mentality and when it is six or seven people across and five or six people deep, the mind went into complete overload. I had to put my left shoulder against one of the um, shop windows and just stay there and just search and scan. And my girlfriend was looking at me going, what is wrong with you? Your head has not stopped moving. Your eyeballs are just going all over the place. What are you doing? I said, I don't know. I do not know what's going on. I was searching and scanning as if I was on patrol. I wasn't in the green. I didn't have a weapon or anything like that. I was in civvy attire. I was in a safe place. I was going through the same motions as if I was on patrol. But you're in a safe place with an overwhelming amount of stimulus to be scanning and assessing as well. Exactly. Exactly. And it's something that is trained. It's even more training to actually turn it off. It's trained to stay on regardless of circumstances. In the days that followed your return home, I'm sure you didn't just have the shopping center experience to make you go, something's not right here. My brain is acting in a really odd way. And of course, you've got the pressure of your girlfriend looking at you going, what's changed? How, what has become of you? How did those conversations unfold? Did you recognize where this was coming from? Those questions were raised. I shut them down. I didn't want to acknowledge it, plain and simple. My job was to do what the army asked me to do. And that was to go, get back to the job, go back to searching, scanning, assessing, moving forward. She did say, you've changed. I only realized what she meant by that now. It wasn't me that physically changed, I mentally changed. For the sole fact that I was doing things very weird, very different from what I was doing before I deployed. When I got back from the deployment uh, after six months, I still had the same mentality. I was still doing the exact same thing as if I came home from holidays. I just got a little bit more experience from that. So basically what happened was anytime she'd raise those questions, I'd say, yeah, it's okay. I can deal with it. It's all right. No worries. I'll just go to work tomorrow and I'll chat to someone at work about it. No, it wasn't going to happen because I felt that if I was to raise these types of issues with my hierarchy, they'd take me off. They'd get rid of me. So I think like any good soldier, bottle it up stick it to the side, deal with it later. How long did your girlfriend have you back on Australian soil before your next deployment? If memory serves me correct, we got back around about the 8th of March, 2007. The day we get back, the then brigade commander meets us at the airport before we get to see our family. He goes, gentlemen, uh, we're off to Iraq at the end of the year, so December uh, 07, get ready. You get home, enjoy your time with your family, do what you gotta do, but as soon as you're back on board, after holidays, you're back to work. You're doing all your courses, your signals courses, basically any support company course you could do, any additional task you can do, you're doing it. And that was to everyone. They wanted six battalion, all ahead go. They're just getting ready, gearing up, let's go to Iraq. That's not just warning you that this deployment is in the future, but you've got to do all the pre-deployment training leading up to that. It is the whole rat race starts again. Yeah, yeah. To have time at home was fantastic. Get to see some mates that I hadn't seen in a while. This is basically the first time of holidays that I've had since joining the army. So in two years, I haven't really stopped. So to actually get back to see non-army mates and tell them some of the cool experiences that I had in Timor, some of the things that we did like in Suai, uh, but we're also in Same, where we did a pretty big job with SAS and the then 4RER trying to cordon off Refredo Renato's movements. So telling those cool stories and then getting back from holidays to be go back to the green mode, get back into it and start training. So pretty much from day one of after the holidays, boys, okay, we got PT, 
We've got a BFA straight up, so your basic fitness assessment. Now we're going to have a thing called the CO's fitness assessment, so something a little bit harder. So if you're not towing the line for this whole period, you're not on the Iraq trip. Tough. If you're not on board, you're off. And if you're off, you're not even in the battalion. I'm sure your girlfriend welcomed the news as well. Well, she she come to an understanding that things need to move quick. If we were to have a good life, we had to do things very quickly. Quick permission from the hierarchy and move forward quickly. So pretty much as soon as uh, I got back home, we started talking about getting married. So in the March of 07, let's get married by the end of the year. So it was a, almost a shotgun wedding. Romantic. Oh, very, very. I'm that type of guy. I'm a real deep thinker and a real romantic type of bloke. Poet. Oh, yeah. The in-laws were living in Perth at that stage. So we went over there for a quick holiday. And whilst I was over there, I pulled the father-in-law aside and say, hey, can I or can't I? And he goes, by all means, mate, go for it. That night, I proposed to her and she said yes, thankfully. So, and ever since then, we've, we have our ups and downs, but like I think that's with any couple, but that's the nature of the beast. In that whole lead up period for Iraq with getting ready for a wedding plus pre-deployment trainings and support company courses and all types of courses that we can fit in that very short period of time, we had to get everything done by November so we could deploy in early December. So we had a very small window of putting a wedding in there. So on the 3rd of November, 2007, uh, we got married. On the 4th of December, 2007, I deployed to Iraq. But also in that very short period of time, we managed to get pregnant. To throw an even bigger spanner in the works, deploy to Iraq, pregnant wife, and another Christmas abroad. With Iraq, you're getting substantially further away from Australia, different continent, change of climate. Besides the situation on the home front that you're flying away from, were you excited to be going? Oh, very much so. It felt like that we're really going to step it up into the war fighting capability unit that we are. And to return to the desert, it was something that appealed to most of us. A few guys within the unit had been to Iraq and Afghan, but very early stages, and they said it was awesome. But during that period, 0708, we're watching the Americans do their thing in uh, Fallujah, Mosul, Baghdad, and they were copying some serious casualties. And we are just going, oh, and that lost quite a few guys, our own guys. They didn't want to be a part of that just in case, which is understandable because the way our pre-deployment training was working was every corner that you're turning, there's an IED. Every rooftop, there's a sniper. Around every open ground, there's a small Iraqi army standing there waiting for you. So pretty much anywhere we went, we were going to get shot up. We are going to get blasted. We are going to get Kazavak'd out of there real fast. So to have that hanging in the back of your mind to say, yes, you're still going and to still be keen to go, yeah, it was very exciting to be still chosen to go over. Basically, if you did the work throughout the year or that not even a year in that small period of time, you're going. But to finally get over there was a huge pressure release. It was awesome. I, I, I don't regret it. What was your impression of the country? Sandy, hot, windy. But the biggest thing is it was, this was the first time that we get to work with Americans. Our first exposure with the Americans, we were in Kuwait when we were doing all of our pre-deployment briefings in a multinational base. So we touch down in uh, Kuwait City and get out to Fla K, and that's where we do our initial briefing with the Australian contingency. And then we went out to a massive camp called Camp Buring, which is about 20 minutes away. And that's where everyone was. The biggest thing that I will take away from it is I do not and still cannot believe on how much the Americans take away with them. When they say it's Fat Alley, it's proper Fat Alley. There's Taco Bell, there's McDonald's, KFC, any of those fast food chains, it's there. It's complete shopping centers in the middle of the desert. So you've got your PXs. They have anything and everything. You walk in, five paces in, you've got a Harley Davidson dealership on the left-hand side, a Chevrolet dealership on the right-hand side. There's memorabilia as far as you, the eye can see. So in the first 40, 50 paces, you've already spent your six months' pay. So it's... They literally bring America with them. Oh, yeah. Unless you've been there, it's really hard. I don't know how they manage to do it, but they do it, and they do it very, very well. When we start doing our first lot of briefings, we're surrounded by U.S. Army, Marines, Air Force, the works, everybody. We also had British Army in there. So again, we were working with a lot of units. And 
we were sitting in these briefings and in the breaks between briefings, we'd have a heap of Marines come over and say, say it for us. What do you mean, say it for us? Say g'day, g'day. And it would set them off. Just like Steve Irwin, we just went, oh, you just brought up Steve Irwin. He'd only died not long ago. Same with Peter Brock. So we were, personally, we were all going, oh, please don't bring up Steve. He was a good guy. But to have the Americans just go crazy for us to say, say g'day, it would make their day. We're just going, okay, cool, awesome, thanks. When I'm around Americans, I say g'day and talk about my pet kangaroo a lot, and it really works. <laughs> well, it's only recently that I started talking about drop bears. Yeah, that works. That, well, that works really well, and they say, oh, everything in down under sounds so dangerous. Well, what do you think we're so hard? Because everything wants to kill us. <laughs> with the work you're doing over in Iraq and the fact you are starting to deploy with Americans and this kind of thing, are you getting a feeling of satisfaction that this is the career you signed up for? Very much so. Put it into simple terms, high speed, low drag type of work. So everything is happening at fast, rapid rate, and very little resistance. If you want to do it, you can do it. Just songs that helps the unit, your team, and your section. That's all there is to it. If you're going to buck the trend, too bad. You're out. So... Everyone was on board. They want to be there. They want to get the job done. They'll make it happen. And how did your wife's pregnancy go? Did you make it back in time for the birth? Or yes, did- yes. I'm probably one of the very few within Defence that managed to get home in time for their firstborn child. I made it home with three days to spare because I did five and a half months straight. I didn't have any leave in Iraq while I watched all of my team go in and out of Iraq. Uh, go to Europe, go to Australia, go wherever they felt like during their period of leave. To watch all those guys come in and out, I was starting to get pretty demoralised. I was still calling home as much as I could between uh, doing vehicle patrols and overwatches, all types of things during that period. I hit up our company sergeant major and said, look, can I leave early? Can I be a part of the early team to go home? So that way I don't use any leave. I'm already gone. With much deliberation between the OC and head shed, final decision was, yep, at five and a half months, you're out of country. You're going home. You meet us at the airport when we're all coming back. Yep, cool. No worries. So be it. I got home on the 8th of May. My daughter, Audrey, she was born on the 12th of May. So just in the nick of time. Congratulations. Yes. I'm sure your wife was happy that you've got something right there in terms of your deployments impacting on the family situation. Yeah. Look, When they say military precision, yeah, that's pretty damn close. You came back from Timor with some adjustment issues. Was that better, worse after Iraq? It got worse. At the end of each deployment, as soon as you get back, you've got to go through POPs, so post-operational psych screening. All of us came back from Timor a little bit pissed off, really, because we were so geared up. We wanted to continue on. We wanted to continue fighting. And it wasn't the bullets and bombs that we are talking about. We wanted to get out there and really cause an effect with the gangs. The um, Iraq trip was... Pretty much a non-event other than Liam Haven getting hit with a IED on the 17th of May 2008. That was one of our only biggest issues. But outside of that, the, the trip itself was a bit of a letdown with the amount of talk and the hierarchy was saying that we're going to have heaps of casualties. We're going to be mopping up guys left, right and centre to really nothing, to doing vehicle patrols all through southern Iraq. So we've all come back from there a little bit disgruntled, a little bit over it. Uh, and the natural process is as soon as we, we get back, there's discharges going in. I'm going on to bigger and better things. I'm going to go do private security back in Iraq. I'm really going to get back into it, all that type of thing. For me personally, after going through all the psych screening, yeah, there were adjustment issues, probably compounded too. Everyone was doing it. So I thought, well, if everyone else is doing it, I'm okay. I'm sweet. I'm all good. But the biggest difference was is I had a brand new kid. I'd only been home for three days. I'm just getting to know my wife again. Most of our marriage at that stage, had, I'd been overseas. I got to see her grow in size to go from a small baby bump to a big bump. Then a couple of days later, out of that bump came a child. And I just go, wow, um, how do I deal with this? There's no training on this part. You've got to make that up as you go. So after a couple of days of Audrey being home, I was feeling a little bit run down, feeling a bit tired. I was probably still fatigued from the trip. And I had the then mother-in-law. She goes, look, have a lemon and poppy seed tea. It'll calm you down. It'll keep you nice and relaxed and whatnot. It actually made me sick. After drinking that, I went and had a lay down and uh, I started having, it wasn't a flashback. I had this really dream. It was, it was so real. I could still smell 
Iraq. I could still feel Iraq. It was everything Iraq, but it was a dream. I was at home. And my wife had gone out to Brookside with Audrey to go get a couple of items for dinner. And I'd just laid down when she left. I must have been murmuring or doing something in my sleep. I was must have been thrashing around. So she um, walked into the room to hear me shouting something. Because from my memory, our vehicle got hit with an IED and it was a really bad situation and I started reacting to it. It never happened, but in my dream, this was real. And I started shouting in my sleep. My wife woke me up and I thought it was the Iraqi army. So I've launched only to catch myself at the very last split second to realize as to where I was. Didn't know what happened until my wife told me. She goes, you do realize? And I said, no, I was asleep. I don't know. When she told me that, I'd... I'd take that as a small breakdown. I didn't tell anyone once I got back to the unit. How would that go down with my hierarchy? To have someone that little bit mentally unstable within your position to go off. So you're recognising by now there is a problem. You're not just shutting the conversation down anymore, but are you doing anything proactive to try and seek help? Nope, not at all. Why? Because I want to stay operational, plain and simple. That's what I signed the dotted line for. I want to serve my country. I think I served my country to the highest ability that I could, but to have something like uh, a small mental health problem such as that, a one-off to derail my entire then entire career would be pretty much suicide. I knew that there was another trip coming. They didn't say what trip, but they said there's more to come for 6th Battalion. I want to be a part of it. So I bottled it up, stuck it to the side with the other one and don't talk about it. I didn't even tell my own uh, section commander. I didn't tell any of my teammates. What had happened? It wasn't until years later that I said something to one of my best mates. And he goes, ah, so that makes sense. So what do you mean it makes sense? He goes, you were a little bit different after such such and such date. And I just went, what makes you say that? And he goes, you're a little bit different. I said, oh, thanks. Thanks for telling me. He goes, no, nah, something changed in you. You got a little bit more angrier. So okay, cool. But that was all of us. I said, no, nah, that was different. There was hatred in there. So Again, I think that's the nature of the beast. You deal with some pretty horrific scenarios, whether if it's in your mind or in reality, it is what it is. You think it's nature of the beast for you and your fellow infantry guys to be a little angry? Yeah, most definitely. The role of infantry is to kill or capture in those orders, in that specific order, to kill or capture, not to hold hands, not to put roses or daisies in barrel lands. No, it's to kill or capture. So in order to kill, you've got to be a little bit angry, not psychotic, but just angry because for whatever reasons, it's not a nice job, but it's not a job for everyone. But for those that do the job, they take immense pride in it. They wholly and solely love the job, not because of the whole kill capture thing. It's just the nature of the job. What was your next overseas deployment after Iraq? So after Iraq, our battalion was tasked to get ready to go to Afghanistan in 2010 as part of Mentoring Task Force 1. Basically, we got the word in early 2009 that there's something coming up. We had a series of um, exercises that we had to do before any sort of manning or planning was to happen. So towards the back end of 2009, we had to do talisman, saber, and all those major, major exercises to get through that. And on the other side of those, that's when the manning will come out to go to Afghanistan. So during that lead up, everyone was under scrutiny as to who was going. So I was in support company at that time in uh, signals. I was asked by the um, platoon commander, he said, what do you want if you were to go? to Afghanistan. I'd heard of a job called the mentoring omelet, so operational mentoring liaison team. I said, I'll do that. And he goes, are you sure? You know what they do? Because I know a couple of guys that had only just gotten back from with uh, SOTG. Um, there were some of the operators on there. So have you heard about this omelet? And they said, yeah, it's a good job. You live with the ANA, so the Afghan National Army, on their patrol base. You're only there with 20 Aussies, but the rest are all ANA. I just went, okay, that sounds good. I'll do that. So when the boss asked me what I wanted, I said, put me on the omelet. No one was asking for the omelet, so I stuck my hand up for it. And when the manning came out, I was one of the first to be part of the Charlie Company omelet team. And to do all the lead up training for that was something different where the army would get you to think along a certain line, being a part of the omelet, the easiest way to explain it was like trying to herd cats. You had to be flexible. You had to have a contingency plan for a contingency plan. Because you were working with the national army, you could not expect them to operate at the same level as an Australian digger. You had 
to be flexible. If they didn't want to patrol, you weren't patrolling. If you got into a firefight and we constantly heard, as soon as a firefight starts happening, they start running the other way. So it's an all out Aussie fight. If you had a team of 20 and most of the Afghans run away, maybe you're down to a team of five. So you're going to be fighting for your life. So we got a lot of that happening around us. We're just going, oh God, are we in the right job? But it didn't deter me uh, to be a part of the omelet. But uh, once the manning come out as to who was part of the security teams for the omelet, we had a really solid team. It was awesome. It was great. Loved it. You arrive in Afghanistan on 26 January 2010. You're meant to be there for eight months, but it ends up being 10. Can you talk me through some of the highs and lows of that deployment? Okay. The highs and lows of that trip, there's a multitude of both. Because it went an eight-month trip to a 10-month trip, because the omelette team had to go in early to do a rip, uh, relief in place, because we were at a patrol base, you just can't walk out and take over. It's almost a logistical nightmare to uh, replace a whole team, one team in, one team out, because you've got to go through the necessary handover, takeover procedures, plus do nursery patrols of getting to know the area and all types of things. Uh, 6th Battalion was supposed to take over control around about mid-February, but the omelets got in earlier, like weeks and weeks earlier, to do all this proper handover, takeover type stuff. When we got into our patrol bases, there was about a 48-hour delay to get into the patrol bases. So that puts us around about the 8th of Feb. And it was bitterly cold. We're talking minus 15, minus 20. We had to go out and do all these nursery patrols with the uh, outgoing team. And to walk around our AO, we had six inches of mud on the bottom of our boots. It was 1,500 metres above sea level. So we were already gasping for air to have all this additional weight thrown on top of us plus the mud on your boots the nursery patrols were not easy they were tough and it was cold so as soon as you start getting warm and you take off your extreme cold weather gear you'd freeze so you throw it back on so you're constantly taking gear on taking gear off to try and maintain some sort of body heat so once we get through that process of the nursery patrols and we take full control of the patrol base and 6th Battalion takes full control of the area, we start getting into a routine of knowing our area, start planning operations in and around our area, of which I was at patrol base Buman, which was in the Baluchi Valley around the Chora. We had a big area to cover because our area wasn't exactly a fighting area. It was a resupply, a refit area for the local militia and the Taliban. So to have highs and lows were a constant. We'd have some wins in certain areas and we'd have certain and definitely have more losses in other areas. So if we start making one village happy, we would make another village very unhappy. So we would cop some flack from those other villages. So we had to be very diplomatic and be very flexible in the way we helped the local community, but also on how we helped our Afghan counterparts to do their job and to try and step them up to our own milestones and to get them to try and operate the same as we do. So to have all that and then some going on, yeah, it was tough. 6th Battalion had some casualties that trip as well. Were any of your mates? Unfortunately, yes. On the 9th of July, we lost Nate Buse. Me and a few other boys were just returning from holidays from Australia. And the team that Nate was in, a few of those boys were in that packet of returning to Australia. So we got back, say, about mid-afternoon from out of country to return back to Afghan to have news as soon as we got onto the flight line to go back into um, our area that we sustained a casualty. We were hanging around the Zero Alpha post to try and get as much information as possible because we knew there was a casualty and it was in our area. We were trying to find out who it was. We knew the mic number, but we didn't know exactly who it was. And it was a shot to the gut because we'd already copped a couple of casualties from uh, like Snowy and Smitty and Herbie. To say that didn't hurt, no, it hurts. It hurts the battalion. But to have someone that you know personally that you have had beers with and socialised with to be on that casualty list, it really gets personal. When the news came down, it was beauty. Those guys that were in the team said, get us out there. Let's get that fight going. Let's find it. They found that anger. It wasn't anger. It was something more primal. It was pure, undulterated hatred. Simple. They wanted to get that fight out there. There were tears, but there was so much hatred. We want to take the fight to them. We don't get time to process that emotion 
it was enough processing time to say, you know what, no, get us out there, get us fighting. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which way you want to look at it, there wasn't a flight to get us back out to our areas because we are broken up by varying patrol bases. And especially for the boys that were at Marshall, there definitely wasn't one getting out there anytime soon because it's a pretty big planning process to get helicopters in and around the area. To have that sort of weight and news to have one of your teammates go, yeah, it's, it's not something that I want anyone to live through. Not so much live through, but to go through that feeling. It's a very narrow line you're living on in that sense in that in Timor and Iraq, you were looking for that higher stakes test to put your skills to the test, literally to deploy and use what you've trained for. And yet, of course, the risk for that is so great and you can find that the hard way, but that doesn't stop you, I guess, from wanting to go out there and push yourself and expose yourself to that danger anyway. None of us were conscripted. It's all volunteer work at the highest possible order. We all want to be there. We all want to do the job. And by that stage of our military careers, we'd already been at it for a little bit of time. A few of us had already been to Afghan, Timor, Iraq, and, and the other trips with the battalion. For some, it was, it was the first time around going to Afghanistan. For me, it was the first time around. But for some, it was a first time deployment plus first time to Afghanistan. And that was a massive eye-opener for those. But for those that had already been overseas, we already got a pretty good understanding of what the pattern's going to be like for operations over there. So on all the lead-up training, basically it was put into our heads, every step you take, there's going to be an IED. And we lost a lot of guys because of that attitude. But if you're smart enough on how to do it and, and operate in the area, you look past that overblown information. But to have a mate go out in such means, it doesn't make the news any easier. To have that sort of mindset of should I or shouldn't I go, a lot of us have already said, yeah, we're going no matter what. Are there any particular contact stories that really stand out in your mind? I was fortunate, but also unfortunate enough. I didn't get into necessarily a two-way range. I've had rounds shot at me, but I never got to return fire. They were more come-alongs. So what normally happens if one of the local militia or Taliban blokes see a patrol, they'll take a shot at us and trying to get us, drag us over to where the shot come from because nine times out of 10, there is an IED in between us and them and they want us to hit an IED. But for me, what the close calls were IEDs themselves. There were a couple of times where I was within meters of an IED. I was within meters again of an IED strike, but it was only like a half charge. It's not like in the movies where the whole world just turns to brown and dust is everywhere. It was only half charge, so I got rocks and dirt and dust thrown at me. You can live with that. There were a couple of scenarios where I was standing right next to a pipe bomb or a DFC, so a directionally focused charge, which is basically a pipe packed with ball bearings, nails, anything shrapnel-like facing in a general direction. And I was real close to those. The only way I knew about it is because the EDD, the dog, would sniff out and sit next to it. Let's go, oh, whoops, I missed that one. But by that stage of the trip, it was towards the back end of the trip and a lot of us were already fatigued. Do you have in your mind while you're over there on all these operations, the family you've left at home, your wife Jessica and your daughter Audrey? Yeah. In the, again, a very short period of time between Iraq and Afghanistan, we managed to have a second child, Sammy. It's productive of you? Oh, I don't, I don't know how we managed it, but obviously we managed it. No such thing as immaculate conception, but we'll move past that one. By the time Afghan is in full swing for us, a wife with two kids, she moved back to Melbourne to be closer to family, which was good because it took the pressure off her a little bit. But at the same time, it didn't stop her from worrying. Any sort of news that Aussies have taken the casualty or there's been injured, there were plenty injured, plenty, plenty injured. The wife network really got working and they huddled around each other really well. To have them on my mind constantly, I couldn't afford to. I'd have to have a bit of a separation between the wanting to call my wife and talk to the kids and talk to her and things like that to actually remain operational and focused on task. Just had to separate just that side, just for short bursts. You can't do it for long periods of time. To be also in that environment, to have you thinking of home whilst you're out on patrol, that's dangerous. There's a lot to take in when you're out on patrol. After going through all that and you return home, how was your headspace post-Afghanistan? It wasn't too bad. After about 50 patrols and 300-odd Ks covered on foot through Afghanistan, you come home and go through all the psych screening and things like that. Yeah, 
the reports come back, yeah, you're angry, you know, you've got social adjustment issues and whatnot, you, you just, that's the third trip. You've said the same thing the last three trips, psych, okay, cool, no worries, whatever, we'll move on. Because we lost quite a few boys during that trip, that was our time to reflect and try and start processing our losses because we'd lost Busey, Curbs, Dale, Crash. It doesn't stop the pain. Yeah, we, we, they've been repatriated and they're at home, but this is our first chance after a long period to actually process those emotions. We did a company function at uh, the local RSL and needless to say, a few boys had a few drinks and questions were asked of the hierarchy. Why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? Appropriate questions, but we weren't getting the answers that would probably satisfy those questions in our own head from to stop being asked or keep going on as a what if. Basically, the short end of the stick of that was it just what happens during war or during that conflict. We lose members due to unfortunate circumstances and injuries and things like that. Move on. And for boys to accept that, it was a hard, hard pill to swallow. Talk me through your journey from there to discharging from the army. After breaking up from Oscar 3-4, so that, which was part of Omelette Team uh, Charlie Company, we're all put back into the normal rigors of an infantry battalion. So back out, going back to your traditional war fighting, back into the jungles and all that type of thing, going back to that mindset of conventional warfare. We had a lot of brand new guys into the battalion. So they had all just marched out of Singleton and us guys hadn't been around for 10 months. And you got all these young fellas kicking around the battalion thinking they own the place. And you get all of us guys that are all wired up to see these new guys take over the area. Like, this is our area. Boys, no, we've just gotten back. Know your role, know your space, stick to it. When we get all put back into our companies on where we need to be, we start training the next lot of guys to get ready to go overseas because we start pretty much deploying straight away. Uh, when we got back to Brisbane, before we even got to see our family, we had the brigade commander and say, thank you very much, well done, 6th Battalion. Be prepared for 270 days outfield, assisting 7th Brigade, getting ready to go on their trips overseas. And the, everyone just looked at each other and just went, huh, what, what do you mean? 270 days outfield to get everybody else ready. No, nah. and the discharge papers went in thick and fast after that. I stuck around because I think I'd done my fair share of operational tempo for the battalion. I plan to stick around for a little bit, go do the standard promotions courses that I'd been avoiding like the plague. I'd do every other course but a promotions course because I didn't want to go up through the ranks. So I got put into the regimental police cell, which was the regimental sergeant major's right-hand men. So I got to work with a couple of good lads. Our role for the RSM was to teach small components of unarmed combat. So my background in Krav Maga at that stage was very limited, but I was about to go through the instructor's course for that to start teaching soldiers on how to fight hand-to-hand. -hand. Like, we never did it overseas. That, that wasn't our role, but there was no real course syllabus. So we had to come up with something to learn to fight with. If you have a fatal stoppage on your weapon, learn to fight with your hands knives, whatever you got a hold of, learn to fight with it. So that was an experience, but also the normal day-to-day -day type stuff that the RSM wanted you to do. So that was a pretty good chance to decompress within the unit. Wasn't part of a rifle company, so I wasn't doing the standard rifle company crap. Doing your normal non-techs and kit inspections day-to-day, -day, like the boring mundane stuff. It's pretty hard to try and fit into a infantry battalion after a trip like that. It's really tough to go back to your normal... To wind it down the gears. Yeah, it's damn near impossible unless you were backing it up on another trip and there were already orders to provide drivers and whatnot for SOTG, so Operational Task Group, for them from the battalion because we'd already been through, we already know what it's like, we already knew the area, so we're getting task orders to send guys over as drivers and crew commanders So we could, because uh, we'd already been doing that before our trip, but to continue on that uh, solid role for them. When did your service finally catch up with you? After being put into regimental police for about 12 months, I was told in no uncertain circumstances, you'll be going back to a rifle company on promotion. So during that time at the RPs, I did my sub one for corporal. It's a course that isn't for infantry type guys, but we've got to do it anyway. Everyone in the army has to do sub one. After going through the paces of that, getting through to the other end, towards the back end of sub one, my father dies. He was sick. So I did a small amount of the field phase at the end of it, but I got pulled out of the field phase 
uh, the last four or five days uh, at Canungra to go and attend his funeral. Just a lot of things were happening during that period. So when I finally got to the rifle company, Templeton Delta Company, I was a brand new Lance Corporal working with one of my mates, Jared, who was the full track at that stage. We already knew each other, so we could already work together. It's the new guys that we didn't know, so we had to work on them to get them up to speed. There were rumours kicking around that we're about to go back to Afghan. So between Jared and I, we said, right, let's get these boys readied up. Let's get them on the inside run on how to operate in Afghanistan in small teams. So start working as fire teams, so in bricks, so four-man teams, and start working it that way. And it was working well. The boys were really responding to that type of training. That's the stuff that they wanted, only to have the hierarchy and say, no, stop training them like that because that's not the way it is. But both Jared and I knew what it was like because Jared worked on uh, Crash McKinney and both of us have seen a fair amount of action and been through some troubles. We wanted the best for the boys. We don't want to see them get hurt. No leader wants to see any of their personnel hurt at all. If we can provide them the best training, we will. And between Jared and I, we did our damn best to be able to do it. To be told in no uncertain circumstances, you are not to. That's when things really started unfolding for me. In Brisbane, we had the inland floods. So Roma, Mitchell and Toowoomba had major flooding. So our task as a battalion, Delta Company in particular, were told to go out and help with the cleanup. So we went out west, helped do all the cleanup. So that was a good chance for our section to come together and work as a team to see how each other works. So that was a great training lesson out of that. But for me and Jared, both of us were slowly unwinding. We were so highly strung. Like both of us, we worked really well together. Like we got along, everything was fine. But in our personal lives, things were unraveling. Both of us could see in each other. We'd say, no, you're right. Yeah, cool. You want a coffee? Sure. Let's get a coffee. Let's chat. No, we're not chatting about that. We'll chat about the boys and things like that. Okay, no worries. We tried to, I don't know, have our own little support network (laughs) in our own team. Make it effective? No. At home, for me, it was the quiet that killed me. To have nothing to focus on, to work towards or anything like that, to have a wife and two kids, two very busy kids, constantly buzzing around like, I love them. There's no doubt about it. But I found that transition hard, being back in a rifle company, hard. It's just the mentality. It's the attitude. And then one night, I was having a really rough night. Probably by that stage, I was drinking half a bottle of bourbon a night to just get away from the demons. To have Audrey turn around, who was, she would have been about four, maybe five, to turn around and say, why doesn't daddy love me anymore? How do you respond to that? The simplicity yet honesty of a child is very powerful. Yeah. Like just talking about it, it still kicks me, really, really kicks me. And that was one of those questions that stick with me. How could I let myself personally get that far in my mental instability? But on top of that, we had number three child, (laughs) Amelia. She was roughly two weeks old. We had to take her back to hospital because she got a staph infection in her belly button. And we were about 12 hours away before losing her So she ended up with a condition called scalded skin syndrome. So it looks like someone poured a massive bucket of hot water over her from head to toe because of the staph infection. So she was in and out of hospital. My wife, Jess, she was in there the whole time. I was coming and going constantly at work, get the kids, go into hospital, see them quickly, return, rinse and repeat. That was the daily routine. That's when everything was really starting to unravel. This is 2012? 2011, back in 2011, early 2012. And after going and doing all the cleanups out west and seeing that devastation out there, so that human suffering that I've already been exposed to, Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan, but to see it home side and not really seeing it in papers and news outlets saying, oh yeah, there's been flooding out west. But in other news, not to take it away or give them the proper airtime that it deserves. To me, I, I was really struggling with it. How do you process all that? Then one day back at Delta Company Parade Ground, one of the young fellas, he took something from the um, Q store that he wasn't supposed to. Someone got angry somewhere and pulled us all out on parade. And one of the full tracks were tasked to go and rip into us. So all the lance jacks and all the diggers had to be out on the parade ground. All the full tracks will stand off the parade ground and you watch. Jimmy, good lad, came in and gave us all a ripping. He tore us all the shreds. And I was standing there going, I just got back from lunch going, what the hell? Who? I'm trying to play catch up. And to have a good mate of mine turn around and start ripping into me, no, I wasn't taking any of that. 
for pretty much for 45 minutes, it was a verbal dressing down of everyone in the company. And then for another 45 minutes, marching around the parade ground, slow march, all the way around the parade ground for another 45, that was it. I was done. I had enough. As soon as I got the fallout from, uh, from the parade ground, I threw my slouch hat as far as I bloody could. Everything happening in the personal life was starting to affect the military life. But the military life was also affecting the personal life. So everything was just compounding now. After that, I was physically shaking with anger. I've never had that before. Even after getting into scraps, like on the outside, getting into fights in pubs and things like that, you just go, ah, it's just adrenaline. But not even to have a fight, but physically shaking because of how angry you are, never experienced that before. So at the end of the day, uh, we got knocked off. I went home in an absolute fit of rage. The, the bathroom door copped it. I punched holes through it. So needless to say, I know how to replace doors. I was pretty good at that by the end of it. My wife called the padre saying he needs help. Then this was towards the back end of 2012. Once the padre was made aware, the RMO, so the regimental medical officer, had to be made aware of what was happening. I was told to go see a psychologist to talk about what is happening. And then that got stepped up to, to a psychiatrist. Then I had to go on meds. Then as soon as I got on meds, they started the discharge process on me. I asked not to go because I was an electrician before I joined the army. I asked to get posted, get me out of the battalion, send me somewhere else. If you can't do that, send me to Fed Guard. I have to go sort my life out. And then you were discharged on 8 July 2013. Yep. Tell me about the days, weeks, and months after that discharge took effect, the transition. I feel like I haven't transitioned. I'm still got that very military feeling because under medical orders I was told you're leaving I felt that I wasn't ready to go in hindsight yeah I probably was well and truly burnt out three trips pretty much back to back in a very short time and space and all trips were eventful so to potentially go on in the infantry probably not but to go into another aspect of it maybe I don't want to get caught around the axles on those what-ifs because I already spent a lot of time on those what-if questions. On the 9th of July 2013, I still felt like I was in the army and I still, to this day, still feel like I'm in the army. I just got to go to you now. I don't uh, have to parade, but I still go about my daily routine. I still get up at a decent hour every day, go do a bit of PT, go and do the odd jobs around the house. Those habits, that discipline. Yeah, yeah. And I think that those are the things that keep me going on a day-to-day basis. I try pretty hard not to get caught up on the what-ifs. I could still be serving. I could still be doing this. I could be doing that. What if that ID did go off at full charge? What if that DFC did go off at full? What if? Now, I dare say a lot of people do go through this what-if questioning phase in their own mind. What is done is done. You had a trade going into the army. Was that something you could look at and think, I can fall back on this? Or were you just not in the right headspace to think that productively? I know it's something that I can fall back onto. And Melbourne at the moment is going pretty great guns with the construction at the moment. And I know I could probably fall back into it, but it's it means that I'd have to work for somebody else. I'd have to work with a team that I don't know. And I don't know. It, it, I like the idea, but at the same time, I'm still trying to play catch up on my mental side just to make sure I'm in the right spot. To go in and jump in feet first where I would have once upon a time and only to turn around and go, oh, that was a bad idea. I can bounce back from that. I can only take so many hits on the failure side before I start sending myself into a spiral. You're very reflective. You can tell your story very well. You're very self-aware. Although you might still be transitioning into civilian life, you've definitely obviously made progress with the struggles you were having that led up to your medical discharge. How have you internally resolved some of those issues? Becoming a better salesman. Are you saying you're just marketing yourself to me? Oh, oh, I I wish I was that good. No. What I mean by that is selling whatever happened to me and making myself good with it whatever the scenario may be that I keep replaying it in my head. And they're not intrusive thoughts. If it's quiet enough and if the head is in the right spot to be able to think of whatever the case may be, just be good with it. I can't change the outcome of what happened once upon a time. What's happened has happened. I'm still here. I've still got to move forward, not just for me, but for my family. Having four kids now, 
it's something I've got four sets of little eyes watching me on my actions, what I do, on how to provide them the best possible lessons for their future. There is no user guide for kids. There are how-tos. There are these professionals out there that give you an idea, but there is no user manual. There's no return to sender on them. They're yours. So you've got to provide the best possible outcomes for them and from them to learn on. Sammy, Amelia and Nate are that bit younger, but Audrey has been around for the larger chunk of the time you were in the military and she asked you that very heartbreaking question. How's their view of their father changed over the years since you've left the military? Can the older ones, especially say Audrey, see the difference within you? She's very sharp. Not much gets past her. There are times where I just, I wish she wasn't so sharp, but I'm glad she is. She vaguely remembers me being in the army. There are photos of us, me being in my uniform and we're playing together and things like that. She re- vaguely remembers those. To say, does she notice the difference? It's really hard to say, but I'm around a lot more. I'm watching them grow into small people, soon to be little adults and things like that. But I've been around a hell of a lot more for Amelia and Nate. It's definitely a learning process because the older two, I spent a lot of their time away. And I'd have to put that back onto my wife. She did a fantastic job, absolutely fantastic job, raising two, three kids by herself, not easy circumstances, but to be able to do it and do it really well. She'll probably listen to this and go, no, she doesn't believe it, but she does. She, she has done a fantastic job. Well, now you're there for Amelia and Nate, but they and Audrey, Sammy and Jessica, they're all there for you too. And I'm sure they were the rocks you really needed in that time after. Well, I think you need a good, solid foundation to work from. Me being theirs and theirs being mine, uh, I try and provide the best for them. But at the same time, I need to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. I want them to do the right thing. I need to be doing the right thing. Even if it is something as simple as finishing the dishes or doing something around the home, doing those small tasks rather than doing it half-assed, follow it all the way through to the end and make sure it's a good job. I don't like being the taskmaster because my dad was a taskmaster. For those lessons that my dad gave me when I was growing up, I hated him for it. But looking back at it now, I just go, thank you. You provided me that discipline to do the job right the first time. There's nothing worse than going back to a job three, four, five times and going, should have done it right the first time. I'm wasting time and energy here. What do you miss most about the military? Oh, the camaraderie, the boys. It's hard to find that sort of relationship on the outside. Unless you grew up with these guys, yeah, maybe. But to go through situations where it's a fine line between life and death or hard and easy, it's really hard to find that sort of bond. Have you tried to find that again through any veterans groups or clubs? At the moment, I'm, I'm a member of the Veterans Motorcycle Club. So all core members of military, all services. Uh, we've got one young fella, ex-SAS during Vietnam. I love talking to him. He provides me an insight on what I'm going to be like when I'm older. No uncertain terms, he says, we're all going to be old bastards. We're going to be cranky. We're going to be old. But most of all, we're going to get there. So that gives me some hope <laughs> that nothing is as bad as it seems. You just got to make the best of whatever scenario is painted out in front of you. But to find something outside of military, I'm also a member of the CFA, a volunteer firefighting brigade down here. That's good, but it's not the camaraderie that I'd anticipated it would be, but the call it the chaos, thriving in that chaos, that is from the military that I can put my headspace into, whether if it's a grass fire or some sort of crash scenario, I'm able to think quite level-headed in a logical manner. I'm not saying other people are going into frantics or running around like headless chooks. I'm able to look at it and go, okay, this is the plan of action. This is how it should be done. We've talked about a lot of moments of testing, of challenge and hardship, but when you look back, would you say you see more highs than lows? Oh, a lot of highs, like some really big highs, but the lows have been deep and dark, and I'm glad there haven't been too many of those. I've put it down to my mental resilience has gotten me through. There has been times where it's faltered, but each and every time I've gone to those spots, I've learned from it. I've learned to read the signs within my, in myself, but also to have trust in Jess to say, hey, this is what's happening. This is what I'm looking at. Rather than just dismiss it like I would have back in 2006. Yes, I know she's always trying to do the right by me, 
but do the right by myself. If she's noticing it, heed that warning because you may be relapsing or you may be going into a dark spot. Do you want to go down that far again? Do you want to go down that rabbit hole? If you do, you're going to have a hard time. If you don't, keep your chin up. Do you have any regrets? None. Why is that? You've only got this life to work with. You're born once, you die once. Do whatever you can to the best of your ability during that time. Why have regrets when you can just have lessons? Exactly. What made you decide to share your story with me today, Aaron? I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts now, and it's great to hear veterans of my era tell their story. I don't want to see veterans of our era get treated the same as veterans of the Vietnam era, even before that, World War One and World War Two, those guys never spoke. Not to relatives, but they would have spoken between themselves to capture those conversations and to put it out there so people can listen and learn rather than what we see in the history books and on the old footage reels. To hear those personal experiences, to get them to talk, it's therapeutic for the individual, but it also provides a different spin on whatever battle space it could have been. So we've got a lot of platforms that we can speak on to see young veterans get in there and talk about their experience regardless on where you've served where you've been or how you've been there or anything like that get out there and talk about it because to get it all documented would be fantastic to hear more of it and i think for me personally hearing other veterans talk about their experiences taking me out of my hole and go hey hang on it's not that bad well i think we all need that every now and then to put it back in perspective hey it's not that bad to hear another veteran going through the same thing, hey, I might not be the only one. Who else? Who else? So if we're starting to build this community again and we're all helping each other, hey, why stop there? Onwards and upwards. Aaron, I thank you for your honesty, your openness and your willingness to share your story. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you very much, man. My conversation with Aaron Davis was the last episode of Season 3 of Life on the Line. If you haven't already, please do leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast app and make sure you're subscribed to know when we're back. Also keep in touch on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, and on the website, sign up for our email newsletter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, Sharon Maskeldare, and Rohan Viswalingham of Thistle Productions. Artwork is by Mark Thacker of Big Cat Design. Music is by Dan Van Werkhoven of Mark IV Multimedia. Thanks go to all those who have helped behind the scenes on this show. Special thanks this year go to you, the listener, for embracing this podcast and helping us grow as much as we have. We are privileged and honoured to record these stories of Australian service and sacrifice. Thank you all for listening. And, as always, lest we forget. <laughs>